Good morning, Cass Church. We were supposed to meet together today to, to celebrate our um, Thanksgiving service and a Thanksgiving dinner, and some of that will have to get pushed off till next week because of all the snow that's fallen here in western New York. Uh, but I wanted to read to you something this morning that I hope will encourage you. Uh, it's a chapter from J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness, uh, where he is talking about the church. And so I uh, hope you have a few minutes to listen and, um, and be encouraged. This is chapter 13. Uh, it's called The Church Which Christ Builds. The Church Which Christ Builds. And the text is Matthew 16, 18. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Do we belong to the church which is built upon a rock? Are we members of the only church in which our souls can be saved? These are serious questions. They deserve serious consideration. I ask all the attention of those who read this message while I try to show the one true holy church and to guide men's feet into the only safe fold. What is the church? What is it like? What are its marks? Where is it to be found? On all these points I have something to say. I'm going to unfold the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, which stands at the head of this page. He declares, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let us consider this in more detail. We have firstly a building mentioned in the text. The Lord Jesus speaks of my church. Now what is this church? Few inquiries can be made of more importance than this. For lack of due attention to this subject, the errors that have crept into the world are neither few nor small. The church of our text is no material building. It is no temple made with hands of wood or brick or stone or marble. It is a company of men and women. It is no particular visible church on earth. It is not the Eastern Church or the Western Church. It is not the Church of England or the Church of Scotland. Above all, it is certainly not the Church of Rome. The church of our text is one that makes far less show than any visible church in the eyes of man, but is of far more importance in the eyes of God. The church of our text is made up of all true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, of all who are really holy and converted people. It comprises all who have repented of sin, all who fled to Christ by faith, all who have been made new creatures in Him, all of God's elect, all who have received God's grace, all who have been washed in Christ's blood, all who have been clothed in Christ's righteousness, all who have been born again and sanctified by Christ's Spirit, all such of every name and rank and nation and people and tongue compose the church of our text. This is the body of Christ. This is the flock of Christ. This is the bride. This is the Lamb's wife. This is the church on the rock. The members of this church do not worship God in the same way or use the same form of government. Some of them are governed by bishops and some of them by elders. Some of them use a prayer book when they meet for public worship, and some of them use none. But the members of this church all come to one throne of grace. They all worship with one heart. They are all led by one spirit. They are all really and truly holy. They can all say, Alleluia, and they can all reply, Amen. This is that church to which all visible churches on earth are servants and handmaidens. Whether they are Episcopalian, Independent, or Presbyterian, they all serve the interests of one true church. They are all scaffolding behind which that great building is carried on. They are the husk under which the living kernel grows. They have their various degrees of usefulness. The best and worthiest of them is that which trains up most members for Christ's true church. But no visible church has any right to say, We are the only true church. We are the men, and wisdom shall die with us. No visible ch church should ever say, 
We shall stand forever. The gates of hell shall not prevail against me. This is that church to which belong the Lord's gracious promises of preservation, continuance, protection, and final glory. Whatever, says Puritan Thomas Hooker, we read in Scripture concerning the endless love and saving mercy which God shows towards his churches, the only proper subject thereof is this church, which we may properly term the mystical body of Christ. Small and despised as the true church may be in this world, it is precious and honorable in the sight of God. The temple of Solomon in all its glory was mean and contemptible in comparison with that church which is built upon a rock. I trust the things I have just been saying will sink down in the minds of all who read this message. See that you hold sound doctrine upon the subject of the church. A mistake here may lead on to dangerous and soul-ruining errors. The church which is made up of true believers is the church for which we, who are ministers, are specially ordained to preach. The church which comprises all who repent and believe the gospel is the church to which you des we desire you to belong. Our work is not done and our hearts are not satisfied until you are made a new creature and are a member of the one true church. Outside of the church which is built on the rock, there can be no salvation. Our text contains not merely a building, but a builder. This is the second point. The Lord Jesus declares, I will build my church. The true church of Christ is tenderly cared for by all three persons of the Blessed Trinity. In the plan of salvation revealed in the Bible, God the Father chooses, God the Son redeems, and God the Holy Spirit sanctifies every member of Christ's mystical body. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three persons in one God, cooperate for the salvation of every saved soul. This is truth, which ought never be forgotten. Nevertheless, there is a peculiar sense in which the help of the church is laid on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is peculiarly and preeminently the Redeemer and Savior of the church. Therefore it is that we find him saying in our text, I will build. The work of the building is my special work. It is Christ who calls the members of the church in due time. They are the called of Jesus Christ. It is Christ who quickens them. The scripture says the Son quickens whom he will. It is Christ who washes away their sins. He has loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. It is Christ who gives them peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. It is Christ who gives them eternal life. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. It is Christ who grants them repentance. Him has God exalted to be a prince and a savior and to give repentance. It is Christ who enables them to become God's children. To as many as received him, to them he gave power to become sons of God. It is Christ who carries on the work within them when it is begun. Because I live, the scripture says, you shall live also. In short, it has pleased the Father that in Christ should all fullness dwell. He is the author and finisher of faith. He is the life. He is the head. From him, every joint and member of the mystical body of Christians is supplied. Through him, they are strengthened for duty. By him, they are kept from falling. He shall preserve them to the end and present them faultless before the Father's throne with exceeding great joy. He is all things in all believers. The mighty agent by whom the Lord Jesus Christ carries out this work in the members of his church is without doubt the Holy Spirit. He it is who applies Christ and his benefits to the soul. He it is who is ever renewing, awakening, convincing, leading to the cross, transforming, taking out of the world stone after stone and abiding it to the mystical building. But the great chief builder who has undertaken to execute the work of redemption and bring it to completion is the Son of God, the Word who was made flesh. It is Jesus Christ who builds. 
In building the true church, the Lord Jesus condescends to use many subordinate instruments, the ministry of the gospel, the circulation of the scriptures, the friendly rebuke, the word spoken in season, and the drawing influence of afflictions. All are means and appliances by which his work is carried on, and the Spirit conveys life to souls. But Christ is the great superintending architect, ordering, guiding, and directing all that is done. Paul may plant and Apollos water, but God gives the increase. Ministers may preach and writers may write, but the Lord Jesus Christ alone can build, and except he builds, the work stands still. Great is the wisdom with which the Lord Jesus Christ builds his church. All is done at the right time and in the right way. Each stone in its turn is put in its right place. Sometimes he chooses great stones, and sometimes he chooses small stones. Sometimes the work goes on fast, and sometimes it goes on slowly. Man is frequently impatient and thinks that nothing is happening. But man's time is not God's time. A thousand years in his sight are but a single day. The great builder makes no mistakes. He knows what he is doing. He sees the end from the beginning. He works by a perfect, unalterable, and a certain plan. The mightiest conceptions of architects like Michelangelo and Wren are more trifling and child's play in comparison with Christ's wise counsels respecting his church. Great is the condescension and mercy which Christ exhibits in building his church. He often chooses the most unlikely and roughest stones and fits them into a most excellent work. He despises none and rejects none on account of former sins and past transgressions. He often makes Pharisees and publicans become pillars of his house. He delights to show mercy. He often takes the most thoughtless and ungodly and transforms them into polished corners of his spiritual temple. Great is the power which Christ displays in his building of the church. He carries on his work in spite of opposition from the world, the flesh, and the devil. In storm, in tempest, through troublous times, silently, quietly, without noise, without stir, without excitement, the building progresses like Solomon's temple. I will work, he declares, and who shall hinder it? The children of this world take little or no interest in the building of this church. They care nothing for the conversion of souls. What are broken spirits and penitent hearts to them? What is conviction of sin or faith in the Lord Jesus to them? It is all foolishness in their eyes. But while the children of this world care nothing, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God. For the preserving of the true church, the laws of nature have often been suspended. For the good of that church, all the providential dealings of God in this world are ordered and arranged. For the elect's sake, wars are brought to an end, and peace is given to a nation. Statesmen, rulers, emperors, kings, presidents, heads of government all have their schemes and plans and think they are of vast importance. But there is another work going on of infinitely greater moment for which they are only the axes and saws in God's hands. That work is the erection of Christ's spiritual temple, the gathering of the living stones into the one true church. We ought to feel deeply thankful that the building of the true church is laid on the shoulders of one that is mighty. If the work depended on man, it would soon stand still, but blessed be God. The work is in the hands of a builder who never fails to accomplish his designs. Christ is the almighty builder. He will carry on his work, though nations and visible churches may not know their duty. Christ will never fail. That which he has undertaken, he will certainly accomplish. Next, the Lord Jesus Christ tells us, Upon this rock I will build my church. This is the foundation, the rock upon which Christ's church is built. What did the Lord Jesus mean when he spoke of this foundation? Did he mean the Apostle Peter to whom he was speaking? I think assuredly not. 
I can see no reason if he meant Peter why he did not say, Upon you will I build my church. If he had meant Peter, he would surely have said, I will build my church on you, as plainly as he said to you, I'll give the keys. No, it was not the person of the Apostle Peter, but the good confession which the Apostle had just made. It was not Peter, the erring, unstable man, but the mighty truth which the Father had revealed to Peter. It was the truth concerning Jesus Christ himself which was the rock. It was Christ's mediator, mediatorship and Christ's messiahship. It was this blessed truth that Jesus was the promised Savior, the true surety, the real intercessor between God and man. This was the rock and this foundation upon which the church of Christ was to be built. The foundation of the true church was laid at a mighty cost. It was necessary that the Son of God should take our nature upon him, and in that nature live, suffer, and die, not for his own sins, but for ours. It was necessary that in that nature Christ should go to the grave and rise again. It was necessary that in that nature Christ should go up to heaven to sit at the right hand of God, having obtained eternal redemption for all his people. No other foundation could have met the necessities of lost, guilty, corrupt, weak, helpless sinners. That foundation once obtained is very strong. It can bear the weight of the sins of all the world. It has borne the weight of all the sins of all the believers who have built on it. Sins of thought, sins of imagination, sins of heart, sins of the head, sins which everyone has seen and sins which no man knows, sins against God and sins against man, sins of all kinds and descriptions. That mighty rock can bear the weight of all these sins and not give way. The mediatorial office of Christ is a remedy sufficient for all the sins of all the world. To this one foundation, every member of Christ's true church is joined. In many things, believers are disunited and disagreed. In the matter of their soul's foundations, they are of all one mind. Whether Episcopalians or Presbyterians, Baptists or Methodists, believers all meet at one point. They are all built on the rock. Ask where they get their peace and hope and joy, joyful expectation of good things to come. You will find that all flows from that one mighty source, Christ the mediator between God and man, and the office that Christ holds as the high priest and surety of sinners. Look to your foundation if you would know whether or not you are a member of the one true church. It is a point that may be known to yourself. Your public worship we can see, but we cannot see whether you are personally built upon the rock. Your attendance at the Lord's table we can see, but we cannot see whether you are joined to Christ and one with Christ and Christ in you. Take heed that you make no mistake about your own personal salvation. See that your own soul is upon the rock. Without this, all else is nothing. Without this, you will never stand in the day of judgment. Better a thousand times in that day to be found in a cottage upon the rock than in a palace upon the sand. Next. I proceed to the fourth place to speak of the implied trials of the church to which our text refers. There is mention made of the gates of hell. By that expression we are meant to understand the power of the prince of hell, even the devil. The history of Christ's true church has always been one of conflict and war. It has constantly been assailed by a deadly enemy, Satan, the prince of this world. The devil hates the true church of Christ with an undying hatred. He is ever stirring up opposition against all its members. He is ever urging the children of this world to do his will and to injure and harass the people of God. If he cannot bruise the head, he will bruise the heel. If he cannot rob believers of heaven, he will vex them by the way. Warfare with the powers of hell has been the experience of the whole body of Christ for 6,000 years. It has always been a bush burning, though not consumed, a woman fleeing into the wilderness, but not swallowed up. 
The visible churches have their times of prosperity and seasons of peace, but never has there been a time of peace for the true church. Its conflict is perpetual. The battle never ends. Warfare with the powers of hell is the experience of every individual member of the true church. Each has to fight. What are the lives of all the saints but records of battles? What were such men as Paul and James and Peter and John and Polycarp and Chrysostom and Augustine and Luther and Calvin and Latimer and Baxter, but soldiers engaged in a constant warfare? Sometimes the persons of the saints have been assailed, and sometimes their property. Sometimes they have been harassed by calumnies and slanders, and sometimes by open persecution. But in one way or another, the devil has been continually warring against the church. The gates of hell have been continually assaulting the people of Christ. We who preach the gospel can hold out to all who come to Christ exceeding great and precious promises. We can offer boldly to you in our Master's name the peace of God which passes all understanding. Mercy, free grace, and full salvation are offered to everyone who will come to Christ and believe on Him. But we promise you no peace with the world or with the devil. We warn you, on the contrary, that there must be warfare so long as you are in the body. We would not keep you back or deter you from Christ's service. We would have you count the cost and fully understand what Christ's service entails. Marvel not at the enmity of the gates of hell. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, the scripture says. So long as the world is the world and the devil is the devil, so long there must be warfare and believers in Christ must be soldiers. The world hated Christ and the world will hate true Christians as long as the earth stands. As the great reformer Luther said, Cain will go on murdering Abel so long as the church is on the earth. Be prepared for the enmity of the gates of hell. Put on the whole armor of God. The Tower of David contains a thousand shields all ready for the use of God's people. The weapons of our warfare have been tried by millions of poor sinners like ourselves and have never been found to fail. Be patient under the enmity of the gates of hell. It is all working together for your good. It tends to sanctify. It will keep you awake. It will make you humble. It will drive you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ. It will wean you from the world. It will help to make you pray more. Above all, it will make you long for heaven. It will teach you to say with heart as well as lips, Come, Lord Jesus, may your kingdom come. Be not cast down by the enmity of hell. The warfare of the true child of God is as much as a mark of grace as the inward peace which he enjoys. No cross, no crown, no conflict, no saving Christianity. Blessed are you, says our Lord Jesus Christ, when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. If you are never persecuted for religion's sake, and all men speak well of you when they may well doubt whether you belong to the church that is on the rock. There remains one more thing to be considered, the security of the true church of Christ. There is a glorious promise given by the builder, the gates of hell shall not prevail. He who cannot lie has pledged his word that all the powers of hell shall never overthrow his church. It shall continue and stand in spite of every assault. It shall never be overcome. All other created things perish and pass away, but not the church which is built on the rock. Empires have risen and fallen in rapid succession. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Tyre, Carthage, Rome, Greece, Venice. Where are all these now? They were all the creations of man's hand and have passed away. But the true church of Christ lives on. The mightiest cities have become heaps of ruins. The broad walls of Babylon have sunk to the ground. The palaces of Nineveh are covered with mounds of dust. 
The hundred gates of Thebes are only matters of history. Tyre is a place where fishermen hang their nets. Carthage is a desolation. Yet all this time the true church stands. The gates of hell do not prevail against it. The earliest visible churches have in many cases decayed and perished. Where is the church of Ephesus and the church of Antioch? Where is the church of Alexandria and the church of Constantinople? Where are the Corinthian and the Philippian and Thessalonian churches? Where indeed are they all? They departed from the word of God. They were proud of their bishops and synods and ceremonies and learning and antiquity. They did not glory in the true cross of Christ. They did not hold fast to the gospel. They did not give the Lord Jesus his rightful office or faith its rightful place. They are all now among the things that have been. Their candlestick has been taken away. But all this time the true church has lived on. Has the true church been oppressed in one country? It has fled to another. Has it been trampled on and oppressed in one soil? It has taken root and flourished in some other climate. Fire, sword, prisons, fines, penalties have never been able to destroy its vitality. Its persecutors have died and gone on to their own place, but the word of God has lived and grown and multiplied. As weak as this true church may appear to the eye of man, it is an anvil which has broken many a hammer in times past, and perhaps will break many more before the end. He who lays hands on it is touching the apple of his eye. The promise of our text is true of the whole body of the true church. Christ will never be without a witness in the world. He has had a people in the worst of times. He had 7,000 in Israel, even in the days of Ahab. They are, there are some now, I believe, in the dark places of the Roman and Greek churches who, in spite of much weakness, are serving Christ. The devil may rage horribly. The church in some countries may be brought exceedingly low, but the gates of hell shall never entirely prevail. The promise of our text is true of every individual member of the church. Some of God's people have been so much cast down and disturbed that they have despaired of their own safety. Some have fallen sadly as David and Peter did. Some have departed from the faith for a time like Cranmer and Jewel. Many have been tried by cruel doubts and fears. But all have got home safe at last, the youngest as well as the oldest, the weakest as well as the strongest. And so it will be to the end. Can you prevent tomorrow's sun from rising? Can you prevent the tide in the Bristol Channel from ebbing and flowing? Can you prevent the planets moving in their respective orbits? Then and then alone can you prevent the salvation of any believer, however feeble, the final safety of any living stone in that church which is built upon the rock, however small or insignificant that stone may appear. The true church is Christ's body. Not one bone in that mystical body shall ever be broken. The true church is Christ's bride. Those whom God has joined in everlasting covenant shall never be put asunder. The true church is Christ's flock. When the lion came and took the lamb out of David's flock, David arose and delivered the lamb from his mouth. Christ will do the same. He is David's greater son. Not a single sick lamb in Christ's flock shall perish. He will say to his father in that last day, Of those who you gave me, I have lost none. The true church is the wheat of the world. It may be sifted, winnowed, buffeted, tossed to and fro, but not one grain shall be lost. The tares and chaff shall be burned. The wheat shall be gathered into the barn. The true church is Christ's army. The captain of our salvation loses none of his soldiers. His plans are never defeated. His supplies never fail. His muster roll is the same at the end as it was at the beginning. Of the men that marched gallantly out of England a few years ago in the Crimean War, how many never came back? Regiments that went forth, strong and cheerful, with bands playing and banners flying, laid their bones in a foreign land and never returned to their native country. But it is not so with Christ's army. 
Not one of his soldiers shall be missing at last. He himself declares they shall never perish. The devil may cast some of the members of the true church into prison. He may kill and burn and torture and hang. But after he has killed the body, there is nothing more that he can do. He cannot hurt the soul. When the French troops took Rome a few years ago, they found on the walls of a prison cell under the Inquisition the words of a prisoner. Who he was we know not, but his words are worthy of remembrance. Though dead, he yet speaks. He had written on the walls, very likely after an unjust trial and a still more unjust excommunication, the following striking words, Blessed Jesus, they cannot cast me out of your true church. That record is true. Not all the power of Satan can cast one single believer out of Christ's true church. I trust that no reader of this message will ever, ever allow fear to prevent his beginning to serve Christ. He to whom you commit your soul has all power in heaven and earth, and he will keep you. He will never let you be cast away. Relatives may oppose, neighbors may mock, the world may slander and ridicule and jest and sneer. Fear not, fear not, the powers of hell shall never prevail against your soul. Greater is he who is for you than all those who are against you. Fear not for the church of Christ when ministers die and saints are taken away. Christ can ever maintain his own cause. He will raise up better servants and brighter stars. The stars are all in his right hand. Leave off all anxious thoughts about the future. Cease to be cast down by the measures of statesmen or the plots of wolves in sheep's clothing. Christ will ever provide for his own church. Christ will take care that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. All is going on well, though our eyes may see it not. The kingdoms of this world shall yet become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. I will now conclude this message with a few words of practical application. Number one. My first word of application shall be a question. What shall that question be? What shall I ask? I will return to the point with which I began. I will go back to the first sentence with which I opened my message. I ask you whether you are a member of the one true church of Christ. Are you in the highest, the best sense, a churchman in the sight of God? You know now what I mean. I look far beyond the Church of England. I am not speaking of church or chapel. I speak of the church that is built upon the rock. I ask you with all solemnity, are you a member of that church? Are you joined to the great foundation? Are you on the rock? Have you received the Holy Spirit? Does the Spirit witness within your spirit that you are one with Christ and Christ with you? I beseech you in the name of God to lay to heart these questions and to ponder them well. If you are not converted, you do not yet belong to the church on the rock. Let every reader of this message take heed to himself if he cannot give a satisfactory answer to my question. Take heed, take heed, that you do not make shipwreck of your soul to all eternity. Take heed, lest at the last the gates of hell prevail against you. The devil claims you as his own, and you are cast away forever. Take heed, lest you go down to the pit from the land of Bibles and in the full light of Christ's gospel. Take heed, lest you are found at the left hand of Christ at last, a lost Episcopalian or lost Presbyterian, a lost Baptist or a lost Methodist, lost because with all your zeal for your own party and your own communion table, you never joined the true church. My second work of application shall be an invitation. I address it to everyone who is not yet a true believer. I say to you, come and join the one true church without delay. Come and join yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ in an everlasting covenant not to be forgotten. Consider well what I say. I charge you solemnly not to mistake the meaning of my invitation. 
I do not bid that you leave the visible church with which you belong. I abhor all idolatry of denominations and parties. I detest a proselytizing spirit, but I do bid you come to Christ and be saved. The day of decision must come sometime. Why not this very hour? Why not today? Why I still call it today? Why not this very night before the sun rises tomorrow morning? Come to him who died for sinners on the cross and invites all sinners to come to him by faith and be saved. Come to my master, Jesus Christ. Come, I say, for all things are now ready. Mercy is ready for you. Heaven is ready for you. Angels are ready to rejoice over you. Christ is ready to receive you. Christ will receive you gladly and welcome you among his children. Come into the ark. The flood of God's wrath will soon break upon the earth. Come into the ark and be safe. Come into the lifeboat of the one true church. The old world will soon break into pieces. Don't you hear the tremblings of it? The world is but a wreck upon a sandbank. The night is far spent. The waves are beginning to rise. The wind is getting up. The storm will soon shatter the old wreck. But the lifeboat is launched. And we, the ministers of the gospel, beseech you to come into the lifeboat and be saved. We beseech you to arise at once and come to Christ. Do you ask, how can I come? My sins are too many. I am too wicked yet. I dare not come. Away with that thought. It is a temptation of Satan. Come to Christ as a sinner. Come just as you are. Hear the words of that beautiful hymn, Just as I am without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me, and that you bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. This is the way to come to Christ. You should come waiting for nothing and tarrying for nothing. You should come as a hungry sinner to be filled, as a poor sinner to be enriched, as an undeserving sinner to be clothed with righteousness. So coming, Christ would receive you. Him that comes to Christ, he will never cast out. Oh, come, come to Jesus Christ. Come into the true church by faith and be saved. Last of all, let me give a word of exhortation to all believers into whose hands this message may fall. Strive to live a holy life. Walk worthy of the church to which you belong. Live like citizens of heaven. Let your light shine before men so, that the, men may, so the world may profit by your conduct. Let them know whose you are and whom you serve. Be epistles of Christ, known and read of all men, written in such clear letters that none can say of you, I know not whether this man be a member of Christ or not. He who knows nothing of real practical holiness is no member of the church on the rock. Strive to live a courageous life. Confess Christ before men. Whatever station you occupy, in that station confess Christ. Why should you be ashamed of him? He was not ashamed of you on the cross. He is ready to confess you now before his Father in heaven. Why should you be ashamed of him? Be bold. Be very bold. The good soldier is not ashamed of his uniform. The true believer ought never to be ashamed of Christ. Strive to live a joyful life. Live like men who look for that blessed hope, the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is the prospect to which we should all look forward. It is not so much the thought of going to heaven as of heaven coming to us that should fill our minds. There is a good time coming for all the people of God, a good time for all the church of Christ, a good time for all believers, a bad time for the impenitent and unbelieving, but a good time for true Christians. For that good time, let us wait and watch and pray. The scaffolding will soon be taken down. The last stone will soon be brought out. The top stone will be placed upon the edifice. Yet a little time, and the full beauty of the church which Christ is building shall be clearly seen. Kaz Church, I hope that you've enjoyed the reading from this chapter of Ryle's book, Holiness. 
And I pray that you are having a blessed day and look forward to seeing you next week when we're able to gather back together and um, celebrate the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ together and eat a dinner together that we were supposed to have today for Thanksgiving. We'll see each other next week. God bless.